Hey guys, before we start the show today, I just wanted to make you aware of a fantastic four-week mindset coaching course that I'm currently running for those that want to take their business, their personal and their professional lives to absolutely huge levels. I'm already seeing amazing results with all of my clients and if that was you, please get in touch. Send me an email at inquiries at mrajroberts.com and I'll show you just how I can take your confidence, your mindset, the level of your business and your physical health to exponential levels. Get in touch today and book in your 10 minute free clarity call and I'll show you just what level we can take you to in four weeks. Back to the show. This is episode 47 of The Best Version of You. Today, we are extremely lucky to be joined by none other than former Royal Marine Commando, Mr. Andy Grant. Andy was on patrol in Afghanistan in 2009 and unfortunately was hit by an improvised explosive device and subsequently lost one of his legs. Andy has braved the heaviest of storms from losing his mother to leukemia at just 12 years old to being hit by this bomb in Afghanistan at 20 and subsequently having his right leg amputated. It's easy to highlight the debilitating hardships he's had to endure. But the story this former Marine Commando carries with him, and more importantly, what he's done in response to everything has been through, would leave every single person thankful for what they have. Now, an accustomed speaker, he travels the country, speaking in front of sports teams, politicians, corporations, to help them realise what potential they have and help them become the best versions of themselves. So sit back, enjoy the show, and really, really take in the content. This is Andy Grant on The Best Version of You. Ladies and gents, boys and girls, welcome back to The Best Version of You. I'm AJ Roberts, and today we've got a very exciting guest that's agreed to come on the show and share his amazing story. Former Royal Marine, Andy Grant. How are you doing, Andy? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to have you on, mate. Uh, a brief introduction about Andy. He's a former Royal Marine, as I said. Uh, unfortunately, he was injured in Afghanistan and since then has gone on to do fantastic adventures and he's broken world records. He's now a full-time speaker. He's got a really, really popular podcast called Legit, which we'll talk about as well. Um, and he's basically here today to share his story about how he's come over adversity and that adversity does not define us. It's uh, how we react to it that counts. And Andy's here to share that message with us today. So, um, yeah, pleasure to have you on, mate. It's great for you to share some time with us uh, during these sort of unprecedented times that we're going through right now. Um, it's all a bit sort of up in the air what's going on, but um, thanks for joining us. Um, so what I wanted to share with the, uh, the listeners and the viewers is obviously we pass back to the start of your career, um, but how you got to like where you are now. So obviously you joined the more Royal Marines back in the day. Um, what what made you join the uh, the formidable corps, the Royal Marines Commandos? I um, very naively fell for the advert that I saw at the time. It said ninety nine point nine nine percent need not apply. And being a cocky seventeen year old I was at the time, I thought I can be that 0.01%. percent. Uh, at the time, I always talk about in my motivational talks that you know, despite losing my leg in Afghanistan, I um, I always find that one of the toughest parts of my life. Was losing my mum when I was twelve. She wow. passed away with leukemia, and you know I think losing her at twelve was had the biggest impact on me because it made me want to do something with my life. You know I really wanted to, you know, do something that was worthwhile. And 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but it was all about, you know, I need to make me more proud. Going through school again, I had no real idea of what I wanted to do. I just found myself falling into studying A-levels. I studied English and history at A-level. But again, I didn't really, I didn't really care about any massive pull towards university or a certain career. And then that's when I saw the advert for the Royal Marines. And again, I just jumped at the opportunity, the challenge. And I just wanted to kind of see if I had what it, it takes to be to be a Marine, really. Yeah, um, and like so, so many others do. Like uh, like we said off camera, like my, my brother started off in the, in the commandos um, before, before going SF. And I remember when he joined, he was 17 as well. Um, yeah. And I think uh, for him, it was like more of a, a point to prove because his older brother was already in the army. So I think he just wanted to go a step further. But um, I mean, 17 I years old, it's a, it's a big step, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I look back at kind of how naive I was, and it sounds so stupid, but I didn't ever think about going into Iraq or Afghanistan, even though those wars were going on at the moment. I was just kind of just so hell bent on wanting to prove to see if I had what it takes to be a Marine. I didn't really actually actually think of the, the consequences if I actually passed out and became a Marine of going to war. To me, it was all about seeing if I had what it takes to become part of this brotherhood. And I think to, to do that 17, it was a, looking back, it was quite a proud achievement. And um, how, how soon were you out in um, Iraq and Afghanistan from joining at 17? So I was over in Iraq um, probably 18 months after joining, wow. probably. So, yeah, it was, um, I mean, it was just a lot of the draw. You know, when I, when I passed out to training, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan were in full flow. And I remember just turning up to my, uh, my unit and the sergeant major said, we need four volunteers. I volunteered, not knowing what I was volunteering for. And then uh, a few weeks later, I found myself over in Iraq. And that's just how it was. You can't turn up for work every morning. You have, They asked for volunteers and you either got sent to Afghanistan or Iraq. And I was lucky that I got to serve out in a place called Umkazar, which is on the Iraqi Kuwaiti border. Mm. And for me, to be honest, it was probably the best tour I could have done first because it was a good learning curve. It, was, it wasn't too kinetic. There was no real danger. Um, it was a, a lot of kind of time to learn your job as a Marine. Got to kind of work well as part, as part of a small team and kind of, again, learn the basics of being a Marine whilst on an operational tour. So I wasn't thrown in, a, in the deep end like I would have been in Afghanistan. So my tour of Iraq was um, was really, really chilled out, to be honest. Mm. And um, how long was it before uh, between finishing up in Iraq before going to Afghanistan? Probably a year. I got mm. back, I think, um, from Iraq in the December time. And then probably, I think, Actually, it might have only been nine months in the, um, September, October time I was then deployed to Afghanistan. Yeah, so I, I imagine pretty much after you had your post-tour leave from Iraq, you're pretty much straight into training for Afghan yeah. straight away. Um, because, straight, yeah, yeah and it, it, on a number of occasions, it's uh, the pre-tour training is almost like a tour in itself, isn't it? Yeah, all I remember from pre-deployment training was... was Hours and hours and hours being on coaches driving to certain training areas up and down mm. the country. With us being based up in our growth in Scotland, everywhere seems to be a million miles away. So you're constantly getting ferried up and down the country to certain training exercises again, just to just to train for the, this one deployment in Afghanistan. Yeah, and um, I mean, still being really, really young as well. I was talking to um, Mark Ormrod, um, former Royal Marine, on the, on a podcast last week, and it's just it. Sometimes people don't realise uh, just how much stuff young 
guys and girls in the military at 17, 18 year old on operational tour need to know and have to have embedded in their heads to like think about at any given one time because you know you've got to be fully trained on like vehicle platforms, radios, platforms, weapons, like you know, medical, everything else, as well as counter IEDs and et cetera, et cetera. It's just like unbelievable what an 18 year old on the ground in Afghanistan needs to know compared to like his muckers back home, isn't it? Yeah, it was something I um not so much in that sense, but it links in perfectly. It's something that I had to quickly um, realise when I got back from Iraq that, you know, you can't kind of judge yourself on everyone else. When I got back from Iraq, I struggled for a little bit, uh, just going out socialising. And I remember this one instance, I was with my dad and I think someone had just been killed over in Iraq at the time. And I was kind of getting frustrated that no one in the pub that we were in or, you know, just kind of seemed to realise just what was going on. And it was at that point my dad said to me, you know, Everyone's got their own life as well. You can't keep keep comparing yourself to to every Joe on the street. And it's kind of a bit like that. You know, I look at some kind of young kids now, 18, 19. I look at my own my own younger sisters who were like 23. And I think when I was 23, I'd spent a year of my life at war. I'd done this, I'd done that. But again, you can't really you can't really compare yourself to everyone else. It was a decision I made and mm. I'm very proud of the responsibilities I had at the time and everything like that. But yeah, it is it is funny to think back about the responsibility maybe you know you and I had at that age and actually what you know your average Joe in City Street has to do at that age. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite remarkable. And uh, on my last Afghan tour, like when I was like a commander, and uh, I used to that's what I thought. I was like sat there looking at the guys, thinking like, man, these guys, my boys, like you know they have to know so much stuff, and it's quite a proud thing to look at and see. Yeah, and be a part of like massively. Likewise, obviously the Marines and that. You know, I worked with them a number of occasions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're like, you know, just formidable outfit, like really switched on guys. Um, so like, uh, obviously in your Afghan tours, when you unfortunately had your injury, um, I mean, for the benefit of the, the listeners, and that, if you wouldn't mind just running through like kind of what what led up to happening in the incident, and obviously when you come back to UK. Yeah, I was based in Fobinkman, which was in Sangen, and. Although we didn't, although we knew it was it was very obviously very dangerous at the time. It's only when you look back in hindsight. We were there in two thousand and nine, which was the deadliest year for British Armed Forces, and mm. you know it was um, it was just crazy looking back now. It was like the Wild West. You know, every single day you stepped foot outside of the base, you came into some sort of contact with the enemy, whether that was small arms or IED. Uh, and I'd been in Afghanistan for five months or so. I had six weeks left to push. And it was just a normal routine foot patrol, one that we'd done hundreds of times before. On this particular morning, we were going out to find, um, we knew where the enemy were, and the idea was to get into position in the hope that uh, when first light arrived, we'd be there ready to basically give the enemy the good news. On this particular morning, I was the second man in the patrol, and my best mate Ian was leading the way. We were walking down along the field, and there was an irrigation ditch to our right-hand side. I was following in Ian's footsteps. Until he eventually stopped and said, Andy, we need to jump over this ditch. I said, mate, I'm right behind you. Whenever you're good to go, you just you just let me know. He walked a little bit further until he stopped and said, we're going to go here. He kind of steadied himself. Again, I was right behind him. He ran, jumped over the ditch. And being his cover man, I was just right next, right next to him, ready to jump. And just as kind of my right leg was on the, on the edge of the ditch, ready to jump, I just heard two of the loudest bangs. I've ever heard in my life and everything went pitch black. What Ian didn't see was on the other side, there was a tripwire in between two trees, maybe an inch or so off the ground, attached to two mortars. He's jumped, hit this tripwire, 
two bombs were going off in between us, blowing forward and blowing me back. And I remember the whole the whole incident perfectly. I just straight away remember falling back and screaming as loud as I could. I suffered 27 separate injuries in that one split second. Wow. I shrapped my face, uh, broken sternum, a broken elbow, severed my femoral artery, I chunked out both forearms, chunked out my left leg, broke both lower legs, and I'm nerve damaged to both hands and both feet. Thankfully, the guys on the ground on everything they could to get to me. It was an army medic that we had attached to us called James Smith who got there to me. He applied a tourniquet to my groin, which ultimately saved my life. And then the rest of the guys just done everything they could to keep me alive. Until about 40 minutes later, the uh, the mate came in and picked me up. And that's when I don't really remember anything from that moment on. They obviously pumped all the drugs and fluids into me. And then the next thing I knew is I woke up two weeks later back in Serioc Hospital in the UK. So it was a, um, it was a crazy experience to one minute be, you know, this big, rough, tough Royal Marine commander in Afghanistan to then, you know, being fed from a tube um, in intensive care in Birmingham literally two weeks later within a, within a blink of an eye. Wow. And and, and, and your other, the, the, your friend who jumped into the ditch, um, uh, what happened to him? Was he badly injured? He was, yeah. He um, he suffered a broken elbow and a broken femur and had a nasty bang to the back of his head, to which point he doesn't even remember the instance. Looking really? back now, he doesn't remember anything about it, no. Wow. He actually went on to make a really good recovery, thankfully. And um, we're still best friends now to this day. He actually went back out to Afghanistan a couple of years later. And he's now left the court. He's now a firefighter up in Scotland. So he, uh, he's made a he's made a full recovery and he's, he's doing really well. Oh, good man. That's awesome. And um, obviously, once, like every other injury that tends to happen in the UK, uh, in Afghanistan, you come back to UK straight into kind of like rehab and that was it similar process for like the other guys obviously you were at Birmingham and then you go to like Headley Court yeah it was but for me I think like you say if you've had Mark Warmer on maybe you'll know more about his, his recovery and I don't know much about him in that sense but I'm just I just know from other amputees that if you become an amputee it's, it's pretty much straightforward you know you've lost your leg then you know that's it it's gone now so you need to crack on whereas for me with my right lower leg I had six centimetres of bone that were missing. Don't ask me how my leg was still attached. I've got no idea, but basically six centimetres of my fibula and tibia is gone. And I had two options. I could either have the leg amputated or I could try and reconstruct the leg. So I chose to try and reconstruct it. So for the next 18 months, I had to wear this cage on my leg. It's called an Elizabeth frame, and it's basically a leg lengthening process. They broke my leg in separate position, put two bolts either side the brake, Gave me a couple of spanners, and then every single day I had to pull the uh, tear the pack spanner, sorry, and, and pull the bone apart in my leg. So looking back now, it would have been a lot easier for me to just have the leg amputated right there, right then. Yeah. But obviously, I was in no rush to start chopping parts of my body off. If, if someone said that this was going to work, you know, I wanted to give it a go. So my rehabilitation looked a lot different to a lot of amputees, where I had this big cage on my leg, trying this leg lengthening process. And for the next 18 months, I spent that time in and out of Celio Hospital and mostly spent down in Headley Court, the rehabilitation centre, doing this leg lengthening process. Wow. And um, it must have been quite a frustrating time as well, because like you said, in hindsight, it would have been better to like lose a leg. But like the whole length, uh, leg lengthening process must have been like quite frustrating. Just, you know, a lot of like, you, you don't know what's going to happen like long term, if it's actually going to work. And... Is it all going to be for nothing? And um, so, look, uh, you know, after you, you lost a leg, 
at what point um, was it? Was that was that a key point for you to then go kind of like accept? You've accepted now. This is what it is, and then it, from there it was like right now. This is what I want to go and do. Massively, yeah. I mean, you did the name on the head then. For me, the biggest thing was the um, the not knowing. You know, I had this cage on my leg, and it was just, will it ever get better? Mm-hmm. Sorry, will it ever get better? Will it ever be worthwhile? And around that same time, you know, I was looking at friends like Mickey Yu, and you know, he's lost both his legs. Yeah, he was having a more fulfilled life than me. You know, there are all these other guys who were double amputees, triple amputees, and they were running around, they were learning to ski, they were skydiving, they would all do these amazing things. And yeah, here's me with two arms and two legs, and I couldn't do anything. So in the end, it was the frustration, really, of, of wanting to get on with my life and wanting to go back to being that young Marine that I still felt I was. That's ultimately what made me go to, towards the amputation. <clears throat> and then once I did have the leg amputated, that was just like closing a chapter in the book. Then it was kind of like, right, that's it, done. I've made the decision. I'm now back in control of my own destiny. You now it's it all down to what I do with it. Like, like I think we said, might have been at the start of the podcast or before we before you hit record. Is that you know, I believe that life's challenges. You know, you shouldn't be defined on whatever challenges you face. You should be defined on how you react to them. Mm. So for me, it's all about okay. Yeah, I got blown up in Afghanistan. That's one of those things. For me, though. I'm going to take back control of the situation. I'm going to have my leg amputated and then judge me on how I react to that rather than judge me on being blown up. That was kind of my attitude. Yeah, no, no it's fantastic. And it's almost like, uh, and it's really relevant to everything that's going on in a minute. It's, you know, you focused on what you can do rather than what you, you can't do, um, which like right now is uh, so relevant to everything that's going on, isn't it? Probably, yeah. yeah I, th- I always say, I've done a kind of few of these and to certain people and, might sound really weird to people, but I'm just so excited to see how people are going to change for the better after mm. this. Because for me, some of the most positive changes I've made have been on the back of you know going through real adversity, whether it was losing my mum or whether it was getting blown up or losing my leg. It was, you know, I noticed like I've grown a lot as I've grown a lot as a person. And the person I am today, you know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be here now and, and doing the things I'm doing if it wasn't for those challenges. So. I'm actually really excited in a in a sick kind of weird way of just seeing how how amazing people are going to be at the end of this because again I think going through real adversity does help you become a better person. Yeah, 100%. And it's because you you know you're learning from failures, learning from setbacks, you're learning from being on your back looking up. Um, and this is exactly why I love doing the show and getting the guests on that I do because you know to share their stories of going through these different types of adversity because everyone out there has been through something you know in their life you know no, no one's had a perfect like gleaming movie star life um you know whereas everything's like all sunshine and rainbows you know we've all had some kind of setback at some point it's like you say it's how you come out the other side of that how you take yourself forward um and what you do to you know use those experiences to improve your lifestyle um and show others along the way you know yeah, I say it all the time. I mean, I'm, I do the motivational speaking now and I've been lucky. It's, it's gone really well these last few years. And no matter who, I, whether I'm speaking to a school in Liverpool or whether I'm speaking over in the States or it's a big, I spoke to the likes of the England football team or to Nike, all these huge companies. The funniest thing is I always start the presentation off with a picture of me and my mum. And I, I tell the story about how I lost my mum when I was 12. And I say to people, you do not need to get blown up in Afghanistan to realise life can be shit. <laughs> Life is hard and life is tough in, in millions of different ways, whether it's, you know, financially living month to month, whether it's relationship breakdown, whether it's, you know, you've been made redundant, whatever it may be, you know, life is hard. And, and that's the thing that we all share in common, like you say, more so than ever now. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, that was going to be obviously one of my questions that you led on to with the speaking. You know, you're doing it like all over the place now. But what actually got you into speaking? Uh, was it a friend that said like, oh, Andy, you know, you've got to share your story or did you just get up one day and thought, yeah, that's what I want to do? No, it was a, it was a funny story, actually. I uh, Like I say, before I joined the Marines, I was in sixth form and I kept a good relationship with the, uh, with the teachers. So when I joined the Marines, my old English teacher kept in touch and said, can you come in and just speak to the kids and talk to them about your new career? Maybe I might give them a few ideas. So I just went in jeans and T-shirts and done a really informal chat for 20 minutes in front of the kids. It seemed to go quite well. And then obviously I got back to my rack. I'd done the same about what a rack was like. And then after I was injured, um, or oh, sorry, on r and I went again, spoke about Afghanistan. Then obviously I got injured and I had a phone call one day from the school secretary. And she said, Andy, can you come and do another talk for the kids? I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. She said, this, this time, can you wear your uniform and all of your medals? And I thought, I'm only going to talk in a classroom for 20 minutes. I'm not getting dressed up, you know, you know yourself, all that hassle of getting into the rig. And I thought, I'm not, I'm not doing that just for going into a classroom. And then she replied, well, no, it's, it's going to be in the local town hall in front of 700 people. And then I was like, right, okay, I, uh, I might need to practice something now instead then. So I, uh, I sat down with my old English teacher. And we came up with a speech and it coincided. It was the week before I was having my leg amputated. So I came up with a speech about how, you know, life's not always going to go, go the way we think. You know, challenges are going to pop up. And it's all about how we react to these challenges. And I explained how I was having my leg amputated and these guys are going off to the big wide world and we don't know what's going to happen, but you've got to try and stay, stay hopeful. And I've done this talk and we got a standing ovation and people were crying and hugging me at the end of it. And I thought, you know what? I quite enjoyed that. It was it was good fun, and, and that kind of planted the seed. And then as the as the years went on, and I started challenging my own self, and the story changed. I just kind of molded it into a into a presentation, and it's just grew and grew really. Mm. And uh, you mentioned before you you know you spoke to the England football team. What was that like for you? What was the experience? I mean, only because I'm a massive Liverpool fan. That's probably the only time I got nervous. You know, I've spoken from to I think twenty thousand people being the biggest crowd, and I was wasn't nervous whatsoever, but. I think speaking in the likes of Jordan Henderson and Trent Alexander-Arnold and a few of the Liverpool players, that was a bit that was a bit nerve-wracking. But again, it was they they all made me feel at home straight away. And yeah. at the end of the day, they're all humans, and I think it was just me being a bit of a fanboy in them a lot, just because I'm a massive red. That was that was the nerve-wracking part. But yeah, it was a great experience, and um, and so hopefully to think that you had even the slightest of positive impact on them, then yeah, it's, it's a great feeling. No, that's awesome. And uh, I mean, just well, myself, I'd love to be able to, you know, talk to like the England team uh, or players like that. You know, sports sports teams is something I'm getting into myself. Like, um, but th- those kind of players and the, the levels that they're playing at and their mentality and stuff. If you can like add a little bit of value to their, their game, you know, that's that's a that's a huge achievement in itself. Um, when, when was that you, you did that? It was just before, literally a couple of days before they flew out to the World Cup. Oh, really? So- up yeah, it was kind of Southgate's idea to just have them. Um, yeah. The last farewell was we spent 24 hours with them and we done mm. a kind of multiple talk and then we um we sat down and like got them um, split up into groups and had some one on one time with them and just played a bit of football with them, had a barbecue and I think it was just to try and instill a little bit of national pride again back in the team and say, look, you know, this is what these lads have done for the country and mm. here's the story about what they've overcome and you know we can do the same and. Like, like you said, he got to the semi-final even quite well. 
Yeah. I wish they did because my speaking price would have went through the roof if they'd won it. Like, but never mind. Should have tried to get them to fly you out there before the semi-final. Might have made a yeah. difference. A funny story, actually. I um, I done a motivational talk to um, to Forest Green. They were non-league at the time, and I went and spoke to them. They got beaten in the playoff final to get promoted to League Two, and then a year later they got to the playoffs again. Invited me in to speak to them before the semi-final, and they got through to the semi-final into the final. And the manager rang me and asked me to come and do another talk for him at Wembley. But I couldn't go. I was on holiday at the time. So I sent a load of um, posters that they put up in the Wembley dressing room. And they ended up getting promoted into League Two for the first time in their history. So, yeah, I think if Southgate had knew that, maybe he should have, he should have, he should have flew me out there. <laughs> yeah, I, I bring Gareth Southgate himself. One person I'd love to get on the podcast. And it's not just because he's England manager. It's because of the level he takes his, uh, his own tuition to. Um, I've read a lot on how, um, and I've learned this through doing coaching badges, um, is that, you know, he's gone off and he's like, learned all about the All Blacks and, how, you know, every, how this, this team's structured and the mentality. He's, you know, studied NFL plays. He's stuck, you know, the, the level of he's taken his own coaching tuition to is like phenomenal. Um, and it, Look, I got to spend some time with him and he is, um, he's such an unassuming character. You know, you don't you see him on TV and he's not this kind of big shout and big, but he's so intelligent, and, and you know when when he speaks, you listen. He's just got this aura about him where mm. even just sitting down having a coffee, you wanna you're hanging on every word he says. He's a, yeah, he's a very good leader. Well, on the subject of sport, uh, obviously once you've gone through your rehab and stuff like that, and you set yourself some challenges, you uh you, you break the world record for single leg amputee for running ten k uh, in thirty seven minutes, which is ridiculously quick. <laughs> yeah, I mean a big kind of. A lot, a lot of my inspiration came from um, the likes of, again, I mentioned them before, Mickey Hugh. You know, I was surrounded by guys who were, who, who were really pushing the limits on sport and they were going off to the Paralympics and they had these dreams and aspirations. And I came on the back of the Invictus Games. I, I saw the kind of power of sport and, and that was propelling so many of my friends onto, you know, greater heights. And I kind of wanted some of it. Sadly for me, the longest distance in the Paralympics is 400 metres. And I, you know, fancy myself as a bit more of a longer distance runner. So I just done some Googling and I found out there was a guy from Canada who lost his leg in a car accident and he could run 10,000 metres in 37.53. And I thought, you know what, it's an achievable target for me. So I, I got training, I joined the running club and, you know, really worked my ass off for a few months and I managed to break that record by 36 seconds and run a perfect six-minute mile in 37.17. Wow. Uh, and that for me was... I always say it's it's an amazing achievement for me personally, not not because I'm the fastest one-legged man in the world. The best bit about having that title was the fact that old marine mates were saying to me, you know, you're fit enough now to kind of pass a PT aptitude. You know, you're fit enough not to just get in the core. You'd be, you know, you you kind of fit to me now. And I think that was always something that weighed really heavy on my heart, knowing that I wasn't this marine anymore. So the fact when I broke that record, I had my old friends and old colleagues. You know, giving me a chip up saying, mate, that is, you know, pretty punchy that the time you're running. Having old friends say that to me in the Marines, that meant more to me than the being, if you like, the fastest one legged man in the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, of course. And um, I, I think that's quite um, a common trend with uh, military guys and the girls and, and veterans and stuff like that. When it comes to like those uh, like stardom heights or meeting like really, really famous people, we tend not to get starstruck or bothered by those accolades if you know what I mean I've um I've spoken to people about this before and it's the same for myself like for me like 
Colonel Tom Moore is like, and you know, up there in terms of celebrity status and amazing wow. achievements. You know, he's the kind of person I'd be like, wow, like I want to shake his hand. Whereas, like you said before, like the majority of other people are kind of yeah. humans, like we are, um, yeah. and you know, they sit on the same toilet as we do at the end of the day. So it's a yeah. You know what I mean, and it's. But I always find that the, the military people, the veterans, that always see people like yourself, Mickey Yules, and and stuff like that, as that you know the people that are up there in terms of the stardom type stuff. Yeah, I talk about Mickey and, and like Joe Townsend a lot all the time. He's the Marine who lost both his legs, and he's now done a number of Ironmen and, and representing this country out in Rio. And for me, that's what I always say to people: like you know, you got to surround yourself by people who are going to make you raise your game. So it's very hard to feel sorry for myself when I, you know, look on Twitter and see what Mickey's getting up to or what Joe's getting up to. And they both got no legs and yet they're living a far more fulfilled life than 90% of people out there. So they're for me are the big, you know, inspirations and the kind of the, if you like the celebrities that I'd rather be friends with rather mm. than you know, some reality TV shows, stars, anything like that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And it's just the value they offer as well, you know, and uh, and the like the adversity they've been through, which is relevant to people in a lot of ways. And um, whereas, you know, especially in times like now, we're really seeing that, you know, actors and singers and you know the likes of them who are very good at what they do. Um, but like, you know, the the we're seeing now that it's the true adversity of like normal everyday people that are. Is really shining at the minute, which is awesome to see. So, like, like, like yourself, I'm very keen to see what things are going to be like in a few months when it kind of dies down. I'm, I'm really hoping that, and I was saying this to some friends yesterday, is that kids as well, especially teenagers and stuff, and you know, I'm sure you agree with the talks to at the schools, um, is that they'll they'll really really enjoy that face to face interaction and. Yeah. So much more so that you know, sending a "how are you" message via emojis is going to be irrelevant, and it's going to hopefully go a bit more back to face to face because people are enjoying it. I hope so. Yeah, I mean that's the one big thing. I'm quite an emotional person anyway, but that's the one big thing I've missed. Just you know, giving someone a hug and having that human interaction and just seeing friends, you know, face to face. And and yet I do hope that you know people. I mean that's one thing I've personally done the last few weeks is rather than you know getting bombarded with big you know huge WhatsApp group chats. Rather than kind of getting involved in that, which I still do, but I've just been like FaceTiming someone out, out of it, you know, every every other day you maybe pick someone in the group and just give them a FaceTime and talk to them rather mm. than, I think because it's so easy, isn't it? Especially for young people to just get caught up in the slide into each other's DMs and sending emojis and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's that kind of face-to-face interaction I think has been lost. And like you say, hopefully we, we can all appreciate it a bit more of just how important it is to have you know, friends and, and talk to strangers and say hello to people. It's, it's a big thing. Mm, yeah, it's massive. Uh, I, I think one of the biggest things is, is a lot of younger kids now and having kids myself, uh, teenagers, um, is the importance of having strong mentors. Um, and there's not as many around for teenagers as like perhaps when we were teenagers. Um, who would you say is your biggest mentors at the moment? Yeah, I've got a few really. I think as as a mentor, um, I, I look at my dad. I'd say he's kind of sort of a mentor. He's someone I look up to um, purely for the fact that he brought up three kids on his own. You know, I've got a daughter now who's five, so he's someone I look up to and think you know maybe ask for you know parent uh, fatherly advice if you like, and um, maybe help with parent and stuff like that. So I'd say he's sort of a mentor. Um, my running coach is a huge mentor for me. He's someone who. 
you know, running kind of helped save my life when I was on the tricky transition from going from, you know, Marine to amputee. Running was the thing that kind of kept me on track and helped bring me out of a pretty dark place. And not just the running and keeping myself fit and healthy, you know, having a running coach there who I could talk to. He was a he was someone who, who I kind of take a lot of life advice from. And I've got a friend called uh, Paul Cheatham. He owns an accountancy firm called Shadulo that I've done some work for. And he's became a good friend over the last few years. And he's someone I look to as a bit more of a business mentor as well. You know, someone who, you know, just a working class lad who's done really well for himself and someone who I look at, up to. And, you know, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be afraid to, to ask him for advice. So I've got to say, you know, a few. My dad in a family sense, my runner coach Tony in a more of a kind of friendly, worldly sense. And again, Paul in a bit more of a business sense. And again, bang on in what you say, you know, it's so important to have those mentors and people you, who you can look up to and ask for help from, ask for advice from, and, but even just look at them from afar and just pick up what they're doing. It's mm. so important to have. Yeah. Um, and it, is it, um, along with everything else you do with the talking and, you know, learning from mentors and stuff like that, is that what uh, inspired you to start your, your podcast? You know what? I, uh, I got asked to go on a few podcasts and, Again, it's, it's probably one of the reasons I wrote the book as well, I think, for a long time. And you probably felt this yourself, uh, being ex-military, I think. But as military guys, you don't really, you don't think of yourself as um, as anyone special in the sense of you don't really maybe blow your own trumpet and stuff. And again, I, I was going through Headley Court and I'd, I'd been blown up, and, but so had everyone else. You know, all my mates are being blown up, so there was nothing unique about me. It was only when I came back to Liverpool and, and I realised, you know, it's not normal to be a Marine and to to spend a year of your life at war and to come back with one leg and to do this and to do that. And I realised that, you know, there was something different about us. And when I broke the world record, that's what made me write the book because it was something different. And then I found myself that people wanted to speak to me and hear about my story on podcasts. And I really enjoyed it, just sitting down, sharing my story with people. But again, because I knew there was so many other people out there, not necessarily celebrities, but just normal everyday people who've got amazing stories. I was just so eager to kind of listen to their stories as well. And I took a bit of inspiration off the Joe Rogan podcast of, you know, where he, sometimes he just mm. sits there and they just talk about nothing for, for, for an hour and it's just that kind of chat. And I really enjoyed not really having a specific topic, but just getting people on the podcast and just talking. And it, it just kind of grew from there, really. And I got a guy, Tom, involved. And uh, I just said, look, I don't, I don't know how you do any of the tech side, but, you know, you do. And, I know a few cool people, so should we kind of combine it together? And it's gone from there, and it's it's just more of a passion project. You know, I always yeah. joke and say, if only one person listens to it, then I'm happy. You know, I don't I don't mm. do it for people to listen to. It's, I enjoy it. I enjoy meeting new people, and thankfully other people do too. But I still think I'd do it even if we didn't record it. To be honest, I just I just love talking to people and listening to people's stories. Yeah, and it's exactly that, and it's it's a huge passion of mine, and. Uh, similar to yourself, you know, I was listening to podcasts all the time and getting a lot of inspiration from them and people's podcasts I still listen to today, uh, especially people like Ed Milet. I'm a big fan of uh, like Rob Moore uh, in the UK um, and the people I've met through networking events and stuff like that. And that, that's why I started mine. And it's purely because, you know, you get like front row seat listening to somebody's like inspiring story. Uh, and when you're doing it in person as well, like actually in a room or an office or something like that, you know, uh, like Mickey All, for example, when I was at his house and he's sharing his story firsthand in his living room. 
I'm like just sat there with the hairs on my back and my neck up, you know what I mean? So it's just that, that that feeling and emotion you get from being able to share that person's story is like why I love doing it um, and why I call the podcast the best version of you. Um, uh, which leads me on to my next question. Like uh, for you personally, what does uh, being the best version of you actually mean? I think for me, what, what I've learned is, you know, again, there's certain parts of your life that you can't control, but, you know, Ultimately, you are in control of 90% of it. I always think, you know, it's the same things that happen, but ultimately you are in control of your own destiny. And the big thing I've learned really in order to be the best version of yourself is is to try and have an impact on people. You know, when it's all said and done, you hopefully want to be remembered for someone who, who has a positive impact on people and that comes from being the best version of yourself. And the thing I've realised more than anything over the years is you don't actually have to say anything you know, motivational or do anything inspirational. And just by simply waking up every day and trying to be the best version of yourself, that has a far greater impact on people than, than again, a little cheesy motivational quote or something that you might say is when people see you trying to be the best version of you, it motivates them to be the best version of them. So whatever you're doing, whether you're, you know, I love Muhammad Ali once said the thing, he said, you know, if I wasn't a professional boxer, I'd be the I'd be the best bricklayer in the world or I'd be the best cleaner in the world. You know, whatever I do I want to be the best at it I think by having that attitude it's like you know dropping a dropping a pebble in a pond the ripple effect it has mm. and how it inspires other people to be the best version of them that, that's kind of ultimately how I was trying to sum it up yeah I love it mate and it's exactly what the the agenda is with the podcast you know having people on to set that little ripple effect off and and the listeners hopefully go on and you know try and be better versions of them themselves in their own little way because it, like you said it's not about being perfect it's about being just that little bit better every day, um, whether yeah. that's through just like you know small decisions um, and the way you sort of like go about your life. Uh, and likewise, especially if you've got kids and stuff like that, you know, being like that role model to, to people in your family. And like you said, it's uh, it is infectious, and that's why yeah. I try and you know live my life and what I, the way I go do about my business is exactly that: is to have that ripple effect on people to try and inspire people to be better versions of themselves on a daily basis. So um, no, that was a great answer, mate. I love that. Um, so in terms of inspiration, is there a particular book that has inspired you um, over the years that you, you can share with the audience? Um, you know what used to inspire me all the time? It's, it's not a book. Um, it was a YouTube clip, it was. And I remember when I was training for my world record, Again, it's a kind of a cheesy motivational clip, but I used to always have it on in the shower. And I knew it off by heart in the end, so I could have a shower and although I couldn't hear it properly, as I was sitting on the edge of my bed getting dry or whatever, it was still on. And it's um, there's a motivational speaker in, in the States called Eric Thomas. Yeah. And he, it's uh, yeah, and he, someone, I don't even think it was him, someone made the video of an American footballer player training on the beach and put his voice over the back of it. And it's called uh, How Bad Do You Want It? And he basically just tells this story about how, you know, you're never going to be successful unless, um, you know, you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe. And he says, you know, you know, we all want, we all need to breathe. And if I had my hand over your mouth now, the only thing that you'd care about in the world is, is wanting to breathe again. And, you know, if I, if I took your head underwater and you were flapping about, all you'd want to do is breathe. You wouldn't be thinking about making money or you wouldn't, the, the next car or the next holiday. All you're thinking about in that moment is trying to breathe. And he tells this fantastic story about, you know, in life, you know, whatever you're trying to achieve and trying to get towards, you'll only get there if that's your sole focus and you're putting everything into it. 
and it was a video that used to just always inspire me and I'd, I'd keep it on in the background and I'd be walking the dog listening to it and I think that was something for me that any time I've really been focused on on trying to get somewhere and I'd have that on and it'd give me that extra bit of motivation. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And uh, what, what, one of the uh, podcast episodes uh, of mine, I think it's like in the early episodes, uh, I had a guy on called Freddie Fryerson, his name is. And he's actually, um, he's pretty much a disciple of Eric Thomas. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And he's actually the voiceover on like probably about 70% of uh, Fearless Motivation videos. Um, yeah, Freddie Fryerson, his name is, just check him out. Like he's uh, an amazing guy and he's been through so much himself. Like he had to raise four kids on his own. Uh, yeah. Pretty much like brought rap, uh, hip hop to Oklahoma and all this stuff. Like just check him out. Like, amazing guy. Um, so um, where, before we go, like obviously I wanted to, uh, you know, sh- share with the guys like where people can find you. Um, I know you spend quite a bit of time on LinkedIn, don't you? Um mm. I mean, in general, where, where can people find you if they want to get in touch or if they want to book you for a talk as well? Because I know, obviously, your diary's filling up thick and fast. Yeah, um, just, I mean, on social media, it's just the Andy G. Bootneck on um, Instagram and, and Twitter. And then, obviously, on LinkedIn, Andy Grant. Um, and there's the podcast called The Legged Podcast. And there's my book, which is called You'll Never Walk. If anyone wants to copy that, they can just message me and I can send the signed copy out. Um well, that's it, really. Yeah, I've, I've found obviously all my motivational speaking gigs kind of went down the drain with the coronavirus, so it's been trying to adapt and overcome. So I've been doing kind of Zoom motivational talks online, mm. which have been going really well. So people can kind of catch up with them and check them out. Um, and that's it, really. Yeah, awesome. And um, is the, the book itself is that also on eBay, Amazon, or the other publications? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it's sold out on Amazon at the moment, but I've got, I've got some copies in, so you can again just probably best. Um, just trying to drop me a message and I can, I can get one personalised and sent out, really. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'll have to get one off of you myself, mate, to add to the collection of uh, books of the speakers I've had on the show. It's, yeah, uh, we'll this, mate. yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, awesome, mate. I'm, uh, I'm getting quite a collection, actually. It's, uh, it's really quite good. My wife was sent me this morning. She's got to start digging into their books because they're all, every book's like someone like from yourself, you know, has come over some kind of adversity and doing amazing things. And it's the kind of stuff she loves reading. It gives her a yeah. uh, gives her a bit of a break from reading all the the crime books, which uh, involve uh, wives murdering husbands and stuff. Like, I feel like she's you know, maybe getting some ideas. Checking yeah, on no, the, this yeah, month. checking on the life insurance premiums and that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, mate. Well, Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure having the show. I'm glad we could finally nail this down and and um, share your amazing story with the listeners. Um, you know, I wish you the very best for all your you know, future talks and the way your career is going. And that is absolutely phenomenal. It's great to see it progress and that. As, you know, I see all your stuff on LinkedIn and that's really, really cool. Um, and, you know, I definitely want to you know, touch base in the future. Um, yeah, well, you know, we're going to get you on my podcast as well, mate. It'd be great to hear your story and a bit more about you, mate, what you've got going on. So we'll sort that once all this is over. Yeah, awesome, mate. It'd be fantastic. Well, guys and girls, there you go. Andy Grant, come on the show today to share his amazing story about how he overcome adversity through injury in Afghanistan as a former Royal Marine Commando. And he's gone on to do some unbelievable things. Not only is he breaking world records, but he's inspiring people all around the world, not just the UK, to be better versions of themselves. And if you can take some nuggets from what he shared with you today, then you're going to be in a better place tomorrow. But for me and Andy, go out there and be the best version of you.